Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Okay, folks, this is our final episode. And as you can tell, we got to venture out of the studio for this one. It has been wild for me to have this show out in the world. The response was overwhelming. Tons of people I didn't know DM'd me, and almost all of them expressed gratitude that we told the story of Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre so publicly. And so my producer Luisa and I wanted to bring the conversation back to where it all started the art world. We invited listeners to a gallery in New York for a discussion and Q&A. It was a cold December night, and as the sun went down, the gallery filled with people. Um, There's seats in the front if anyone wants to come up. We have like the classic classroom problem where no one wants to be in the front row. But if there's We were at the AIR gallery, a place that was an important part of Ana Mendieta's story. AIR is the first nonprofit artist-run cooperative gallery for women artists in the United States. And in 1979, it was where Anna Mendieta showed her beautiful Silhouetta photographs and where she met Carl Andre for the first time. For our discussion, we were joined by Patricia Margarita Hernandez, a curator who previously served as an associate director of AIR. Patty's a millennial, and I'm a classic Gen Xer. And even though we're both feminists and both curators, it was interesting to recognize how much the art world can change in just one generation. I want to share that conversation with you. So, once more with feeling, here's that theme music. I'm Helen Molesworth, and from Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Death of an Artist. Recorded live at the AIR Gallery. 
All right, um, I'm Louisa. I'm the producer of Death of an Artist, and I want to welcome Helen Molesworth and Patty Margarita Hernandez to the stage. So I want to start with a question for Patty about AIR, which was an important part of Ana Mendieta's story. Can you say a little bit about the origins of the gallery and why it still feels so important to have a space specifically for women and non-binary people? Uh, AIR began in 1972, and it's, you know, at that time, especially the 60s and early 70s, you know, women artists were experiencing what we're all too familiar with. They just didn't have an entry point into the art world in general. They didn't have places to show, weren't represented by galleries. Ana Mendieta was a member from 1978 to 1982, and she had two exhibitions, solo exhibitions. And in between those two shows, she organized a group exhibition with the then-member Kazuko Miyamoto and then the artist Zarina called Dialectics of Isolation, an exhibition of third-world women artists of the United States. And that show for me as a curator, art student, fundamentally shifted the way I thought about art in general. Ana Mendieta and the group of artists in the show wanted to have a conversation about the different types of feminisms and the exclusion of BIPOC women because it's emblematic of why a space like AIR exists. Like that idea that I can have an exhibition and have difficult conversations we started the podcast in the art world of the 1970s, where certainly there was a lot of art being made about gender and ethnicity and race, but not a lot of that work was shown in museums or certainly wasn't in art history textbooks. And I think now a lot of work that's on view in galleries and museums is very much about identity. So I was curious to hear if you have any specific anecdotes from art school or from your work life that illustrates that shift and the growing pains that come with that shift. I mean, I sort of entered the New York art world in 88, 89. One of the things that means is that I entered it under the umbrella of the AIDS HIV crisis and ACT UP, which was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power's response to that crisis. And I was 21. So I, which is another way of saying I didn't know anything. And so I assumed that the art world I was entering was a radical, progressive place filled with people who were prepared to put their bodies on the line to address a health crisis that had been, you know, exacerbated and in fact created by a government that didn't care about gay people. That turned out like not to be super true about the art world, but it was the... It was the ship I rode in on, so to speak. And so I believed it for actually a very long time. And I believed it probably because I was friends mostly with artists. And that was a moment when museums were trying to change. And particularly the museum I was most affiliated with at that period in my life was the Whitney. And it had hired a young curator named Thelma Golden. Thelma was my age. She's currently the director of the Studio Museum in Harlem. At the time, she was a curator at the Whitney, and she was a young African-American woman who had just graduated from Smith College. She had incredible presence. She had this like, kind of dynamic energy. She had a very quick 
wit, and she was doing really work that seemed completely radical. And she and Elizabeth Sussman and another curator at the Whitney and Eugenie Tsai and Lisa Phillips, they were really fighting to make space for women artists and gay artists and artists of color. And so again, I just thought this was the world that I was in. I went to grad school. Grad school certainly started to show me that perhaps the world I was in was a lot whiter and a lot maler than what I thought. But it wasn't really until I got a big museum job at the Baltimore Museum of Art in the year 2000 where I realized that museums were like There was like some carbon half-life that I didn't quite understand. So like what was happening in the street, what was happening in galleries, what was happening with my friends, and what was happening in a nascent way at the Whitney was not happening in big city museums, was not happening in big institutions. And there, you know, I inherited a collection where I was literally, I think one of the first questions I was asked was like, what was I going to do with the Bryce Martin painting? (laughs) You know, like nothing in my... Trajectory got me to that. So I realized there was a art, there was like a gallery critical artist canon, and then there was a museum canon, and then there was an academic canon. And these canons didn't align. And I think that was really the moment when I realized the degree of non alignment in this thing we call the art world that we imagine is homogenous, but in fact is not. And so that's when it started, when I began to realize that. Some of the things I took for granted as a young person had just simply not been metabolized by the more powerful and entrenched institutions that kind of pin down the little art world that we all inhabit. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, things get a little more personal. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G the hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale 
to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. In episode four, we talked about the Guerrilla Girls, the anonymous group of feminist artists who still, when we interviewed them, did not want to turn on their cameras and would not give us their real names. They also talk about how if they do go out in public, they wear gorilla masks, which is just funny, but it also protects their identities. And there was a real fear of retaliation to speak out against art institutions, galleries, museums. But that's really different than what happened in 2014 through 2017 when Carl Andre's retrospective was protested and those folks who protested around those years were all over social media about it. They were posting videos of themselves throwing blood on the sidewalk and laying down in galleries as if they were a dead body. So that 80s version of protesting sexism in this very anonymous way to that also feels like a big shift. And I wanted to know from you what, what you think that means about where we've come since the 80s. Women did protest Anna Mendieta's exclusion from the Guggenheim show. There was a show right after she passed. So there have been other moments of protest without masks or that it, in which people, you know, were making themselves known to others. But I do think that the doggedness of the where is on the Mendieta hashtag folks, I do think it was part of a generational shift. I think most of those women, as and this is anecdotal, they looked younger to me and they looked like people who had grown up knowing about Anna Mendieta's work already in school. And so for those of us who didn't know about the work, like my generation, and learn about the work almost like Samizdat, which was this thing that used to happen in the old Soviet Union where like Xerox things would get passed around to people because you had to stay under the wire of a certain kind of censorship radar. That was how a lot of us learned our feminism, particularly those of us who went on to graduate study. You know, the coursework was remarkably, overwhelmingly white and male. And we, you know, like when queer theory came out, 
there was no one teaching that. We read that on our own in reading groups after hours, so to speak. Like that was how we did that work together. And so what younger people had was the, like the generation of my generation who then went to teach in art schools and, you know, brought that material into the classroom in new ways. But they also had social media. You guys had social media and you had a different starting from ACT UP and then to Occupy and then to Black Lives Matter. You had leaderless movements, right? Like you had different ways of approaching this problem. And you also didn't have, they didn't have fear. They had, I think, more appropriately, they were disgusted and were letting their disgust be seen. And so that was, for me, as um, someone in middle age, you know, there's a tender period where you're not young and you are not an elder. (laughs) So you don't get any of the benefits of the good positions. You're just stuck with this shitty stuff that you learned and this radical emergent generation nipping at your heels and you got to figure out where you are in that, you know? And that was really, for me, very revelatory. Did you learn about Anamandieta Patti when you were in art school or? I did. Do you remember like what, how she was presented? Was it specifically a feminist art class or was she part of a larger, you know, is she part of all of the things that you learn? Part of a larger, yeah. But I also grew up in Miami. We were all Latinos. I mean, like from all over the place. So like if you didn't teach us about Amandieta, we would, like someone would be upset for sure. No doubt. And would gladly vocalize it. Um... Yeah, I think rightly so what you're pointing at is like technology makes such a big difference, you know, and I also think that there's just this understanding. I understand the art world as an industry, right? I don't see it as this like thing that sits away from a market. I see it actually, I see how we all kind of are implicit in this industry and market that we exist with. And I think in that sense, we also know when we're excluded from it and when we can enter it. And I I think those that sit on the periphery, we're never going to get in. So it's so much easier to just say, fuck you. And, you know, all our faces all are in social media anyways. So what are we hiding from? But can I say one thing that I think so interesting? When I entered the art world, I did not think of it as an industry. I thought of it as a place of opposition. I wish. I read about it. Um, Yeah, for me, it was not an industry. It was not a profession. I never thought anybody was going to make any money. I certainly never thought I was going to get a job in a museum. Girls like me didn't get jobs in museums. You know what I mean? It was a friend group, a group of like-minded fellow travelers. It was a place to live your life so that you didn't have to be in an industry. So you didn't have to be professionalized. Again, I think all of this was patently untrue, but it didn't mean we weren't proceeding as if it were possible. It's true though. There's just different art worlds, right? What I always go back to is what art can do. I'm, I'm interested in that conversation of how art moves and shifts politics, how it's able to kind of have a conversation simultaneously with the past with the idea of shifting a future. I still really believe that what happens in this sector, this cultural sector, Mm -hmm. art world, has wild political ramifications. So like the show that Anna did with Zarina 
And then the Heresies, uh, Heresies was a feminist journal and Anna and a group of people, I think including Howard Dina Pindell, they were in the third world feminism's issue. Anna did the show at AIR. These are seeds that got planted in the 70s and early 80s. They're doing that work at the same time Audre Lorde is coming up with the idea of identity politics. They're doing that work at the same time that there's a group of Black female academics putting together, you know, uh, edited volumes of Black feminism. These seeds literally sprung into oak trees by the time we get to Ferguson. Like, uh, the women at the core of Black Lives Matter had read all that material, right? Like, a tiny, tiny group of people did in these alternative spaces and under these kinds of umbrellas took real root and become now foundational texts for one of the most important political movements of our moment that has changed the way we talk to one another and interact with one another. So I like, I have like incredible belief still in this thing that we're doing called the art world, no matter how marketized and horrific it can be, and it can be very bad, but uh, it has a force that we are maybe not even in the moment aware of. A lot of what we talked about in the podcast has to do with gatekeepers and how, as we're talking about, gatekeeping has historically left a lot of people out. I would like you to tell us a little bit about how your life experience and identity informs what you want to show and what you are not interested in showing. Well, I mean, the personal is political. Most of what I learned, I learned through the people that I was going to school with. And we were all Latinos from immigrants, number one, or exiles, or like from all sorts of countries in Central South America and the Caribbean. And we were not white, you know, in that sense. Like, I'm spicy white, thank you very much. That's how I, how I identify, if you really want to know. And in that sense, yeah, I think my experience does inform like what I'm invested in, especially when I came to the Northeast. That art world that I understood was very different than the art world that I came to understand here. Like it was not one that pointed to the US, it was one that pointed out. And then the other thing that it did was it was very collective versus like clawing at each other. So like my, my experience of the art world is one that's very committed to, to people and to history and futures, equitable futures to be exact. But from that experience, I, you know, felt very conflicted. And I think I still do. It's like, you know, you, in order to survive an industry, right, you have to be really selfish and have to be about yourself strongly and understand yourself strongly and put yourself forward. Whereas, like, I go back to AIR, you know, versus a collective. When I think about my thoughts of gatekeeping, yes, I guess I could say and acknowledge that I could be a gatekeeper, but I just don't think I've ever been so hardly in those positions. I'm trying to do the opposite of that, you know, trying to think of, like, how how does the we learn with versus, you know, like, who can I show versus not show? So you want to be a gate opener? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, Helen, you tell us how you 
feel about your role as a gatekeeper? Great. <laughs> Fucking awesome. I didn't even know I was a gatekeeper for a long time, to be honest, which is just something I shamefully associate with my whiteness, a kind of invisibility. I, I think one of the great treacheries of whiteness and of which we know there are many, is one is invisible to oneself. So we find ourselves in positions of power and don't even understand we're in them. And I absolutely understood that I was in a position of power, but I had affected so much onto my own class jumping, this way that I had hurtled over boundaries that were everywhere there for me to trip over, that I had jumped over them, that I hadn't really come to an understanding of myself as someone who was a gatekeeper in the keeping people out model. In my work life, I was often in rooms in which I was the only person who had gone to public school. I was the only person who shared a room with their sibling. I was the only person who had people in their family who hadn't gone to college. Like I was that person in those rooms and I had chippage around it. And that also prevented me from seeing a, a certain kind of authority that I really did have. I had a fantasy about myself that was only part true, that I was Robin Hood. Once I started seeing all these rich people in museums, I was like, I was just gonna take these fucking people's money and do other shit with it. <laughs> I thought it was Robin Hood. That was my jam. And under that jam, I, did, I do still believe a lot of good, but that fantasy, is, and it is a fantasy, blinded me to some of the other things that were going on in the structural nature of my role. I did not grow up in Miami. I grew up here. I grew up in the capital of the 20th century. I'm a born and bred New Yorker. And every year at PS219 in Flushing, Queens, some nice school teacher lady took us to the Met. And I grew up thinking that museum belonged to me. I grew up very proud. I never paid, <laughs> you know? I had all that, like, New Yorker, kind of like, you can't fool me. I know this is on city land. You know, all that kind of, like, punk bravado. But then I, you know, my first job was in Baltimore. It was the first time I had lived in a city below the Mason-Dixon line. It was the first time I had lived in a majority black city. The racism of Baltimore blew me away. And the museum on a hill <laughs> with a statue of Robert E. Lee in front of it, its relationship to the black populace of the city was to say that every fourth grader in Baltimore got to come and visit the museum. And I thought, oh, I don't know what good that's going to do. And I started to figure some stuff out. Like I realized I didn't know anything about African-American art history. So I got all the books out and I started buying work by African-American artists for the collection. Cause I was still very much in a mindset about representation. If we put these pictures up and they're pictures of black people by black people, then we have some place to even start to have a conversation in the museum with these fourth grade kids. Cause I did not know how to stand in front of a group of young black children and explain to them why Bryce Martin was something they needed to think about. And so that started me on a path that has been, you know, wildly rewarding and I hope has some legacy of efficacy because there's certainly a trail of acquisitions behind me. 
But I, you know, those were the terms I was operating under then. I think the terms are very different today. We have to take another break. When we come back, audience members who knew Anna push back on how we told her story. Stay with us. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization. Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Uh, well, I want to start opening us up for some questions. I know a lot of you are here from the art world, that you are, you work in this industry or <laughs> community, <laughs> utopia, whatever it is. And I am very curious about art world reactions to this because I know that telling this story of Ana Mendieta and Carl Andre in this very public way through a true crime lens is maybe a strange and uncomfortable thing to have done for a lot of people who work inside that world. 
Hi, I'm Susan B., and I'm a member of this gallery for 25 years. And I was actually present at several of the events that you described, so that was very peculiar to hear. I was at her Anna's memorial. I knew her. I'm a very uncomfortable thinking of Anna as a victim because she was such a lively and strong presence. I think her, her presence as a strong Latina feminist was very present in the feminist circles that I was mm-hmm. experiencing. And she was very, you know, beloved by the other <laughs> members of the gallery. Although I believe she was also a difficult woman. I don't think you can be a, an intelligent woman under the terms of patriarchy and not be difficult. I really struggle around Anna <laughs> as a victim. I think it's bigger than just Anna, as so much is with Anna. Right, because she's someone who has become symbolic, and people who become symbolic bear an extra burden. They carry things for all of us. When I was an undergraduate in college, there was a Take Back the Night rally, and I didn't want to go. I was such a bad, brash, feral, ah, I've got street smarts, nobody's going to rape me. Just dumb 18-year-old kid shit. But as I got older, I realized I didn't want to go because I didn't want to identify with being a victim. I didn't want to give voice to my own fear. I didn't want to have to deal, and I still don't, with how scared I am to get my car from the goddamn parking lot. Or how scared I am when my wife isn't at home at night. And one of the things I thought a lot when we encountered resistance, but people who knew Anna and loved her and didn't want to talk about her in this podcast... And they often said exactly what you said, like, can I abide seeing her as a victim? I try to think about almost everything I think about now also through the lens of whiteness. And one of the things I think about whiteness, particularly with white women, is that we have access to power through our adjacency to white men. And we are keenly aware of the limitations of our power because of white men. We're always in this double position. And I think we have also trouble with acknowledging that we can be victims, that we are not in control, that we can be hurt. We do not want to admit this. So I hear you and I hear, I hear what you say. I really want to honor it. I think she was a fierce, difficult badass. And it's really hard to keep all of that alive at the same time. I just want to say I really appreciate your answer because I think that is why a lot of people did not want to talk to you because they're trying to keep the memory alive of her beyond this fact of her death. Another question came from someone who remains angry at two women, Paula Cooper and Angela Westwater. Paula is Carl Andre's gallerist and she stood by him during the trial and continues to show his work at her gallery. Angela Westwater is an art dealer who had a romantic relationship with Carl Andre before he got together with Anna. Both Paula and Angela declined to be interviewed for the podcast. The elephant in the room, though, in terms of listening to the episodes was Paula Cooper and maybe more importantly, Angela Westwater, who were both women that went on to have powerful careers in galleries. I was a teenager back then, downtown, grew up around this scene. So what about Angela Westwater, who was instrumental in providing credibility from a powerful woman dealer 
that helped get him off. What about Paula Cooper? Doesn't she have a responsibility to address this? Louisa and I had a running argument, disagreement about loyalty and whether or not it was a value. Louisa, I don't want to speak for you. I don't think loyalty is a value. There you go, thank you. (laughs) I think loyalty is a value. Paula was loyal to her artist. My whole curatorial life, I fought for my artist. And some of them were really assholes. And I went to bat for them anyway, because I thought that was my job. It's one of those situations where there is really no but and only an and for me. And the and means that there's a kind of aporia in the mix for me. And aporia is one of my favorite words. It means the ability to hold in one's mind two thoughts that contradict one another. And that's how I feel about Paula and Angela. Like I am in an aporia, a place where I find it very hard to proceed with my own thought. And part of that is something that it produces another aporia in me, which is I can't get to the end of a thing about Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre and end up being mad at those two women. Like when it comes right down to it, the misogyny that is in all of us, we are all capable of blaming a woman before we blame a whole lot of men in the art world. Starting with the lawyer that. <laughs> and Frank Stella from writing a check and Larry Weiner for being in the car. They didn't lose any sleep. So I really do hear you. But I, I can't, my angry place, I can't stay there. Last thing I'll say is I disagree with you about women in middle age between the two poles. I think, in fact, you have all the power and none of the dementia or <laughs> lack, of, uh, lack of power, shall we say, in your youth. So carry on. <laughs> now that the podcast is out in the world... With the questions asked and answered to the best of our current ability, I hope this will be a stepping stone to telling Anna's story in a way which foregrounds her incredible body of work, along with the question that her work asked us from the start. How will we respond when we see evidence of harm and injustice? My hope is that we can proceed with clear eyes and full hearts, to quote Friday Night Lights, and know that as we toggle between her life and her art, that the brilliance of her work cannot be dimmed by the tragedy and travesty of her death. All right, folks, that's it for Death of an Artist. Once again, thank you so very much for listening. Death of an Artist is a co-production between Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment. Written and hosted by me, Helen Molesworth. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Tal Malad, Jacob Weisberg, and Lucas Werner. Produced by Maria Luisa Tucker. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs. Our managing producer is Jacob Smith. Our associate producer is Eloise Linton. Engineering by Jason Gambrell and mastering by Sam Baer. Our theme song is by Pooj Rue. Special thanks to Patricia Margarita Hernandez, the AIR Gallery, Elizabeth Wyatt, David Glover, and Mark Minig, and to our listeners for asking such great questions. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus to listen early, ad-free, and get exclusive bonus content.
Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. Find more great podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com slash podcasts. Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro. ¿Dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts.